You're listening to Four at the Back with Joe, Mazza, Neil and Pete. This week we're looking back at another one of our favourite football sides from the last 30 years. So pick up your Aid, lace up those Predators and go with Four at the Back. Welcome back to Four at the Back. A uh, bit of a different episode this week. It was kind of a spin-off episode, if you like. Uh, we spoke um, some time ago uh, about Harry Redknapp's um, Spurs side and how they came together. And during the course of that episode, uh, we kind of um, ended up touching on quite a lot of parallels uh, between uh, Spurs in the mid to late 2000s and Villa over the same time period. Now, both of these teams um, had a change of ownership uh, in the early to mid 2000s that sort of got fans thinking uh, that things might be changing. And it's fair to say that both sides were looking to break into that sort of magical top four zone. Um, In the event, um, it was, of course, uh, my team, Tottenham Hotspur, that actually made it into that sort of hallowed zone and and even in more recent times have pretty much um, managed to get into it pretty often uh, whereas Villa uh, ends up falling by the wayside to the point where they were actually uh, relegated and took a couple of years to come back up to their rightful spot in the Premier League. So what Pete and I thought we'd do today is actually go over that sort of era and have a think about why it was that, that one team kicked on and one team didn't. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting one. The more I think about it, I started to realise that there were a few similarities between Lerner and, and Daniel Levy. Um, but the, when you look back at it from a certain historical perspective, there were more differences and the differences were ultimately what was telling. I think a lot of it does come from that very top down level. So the change of ownership is vital. And it's interesting because I don't think it's what the more romantic football fans would have predicted looking at it from at the start. If you go back to when Lerner was a year into his tenure and Levy had been there about five years at that point, I think a lot of fans would have thought, especially if you kind of were a very, you know, kiss the badge type supporter for the lack of a better kind of description. I think the fans might have thought that it was, the Villa had the right end of the stick and it obviously didn't shake out that way. You know, this one of the things about Levy is that he that stands out to me is that he's never been universally loved by Tottenham fans, despite you know, all that he's actually managed to achieve. And yeah, Spurs are probably one of the, until this season, at least, they were probably one of the safest members of the top four over the last few seasons as everyone else bounces around and, and drops out, whereas Spurs have, have solidified that big club status, whereas uh, Lerner was appreciated in those early days, and people forget that, having achieved a lot less, and I think that had something to do with whether they went about their business. I, I 
it was actually quite recent when I learned that Levy was actually a Spurs supporter. He, the way he goes about his business, you would be forgiven for not knowing that and thinking he was a businessman first and foremost. But um, yeah, it's an interesting one that somehow the acumen of the one man outdid the apparent passion of the other. Um, and I think it a lot of the fallout of what we see over the subsequent decade really gets can be attributed traced back to that divide between the two. It's interesting with, with with Levy because obviously he comes in at a point where you know the Alan Sugar thing has run its course, um, and I think it's 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 funny now because you think about Sugar and The Apprentice and the fact that he's this sort of you know pretty universally loved figure in popular culture and it's easy to forget that Spurs fans absolutely loathed him um despite the fact that he saved the club from complete oblivion the subsequent falling out of Terry Vanimals was something that Spurs fans um found very hard to forgive him and you know there's all this sort of um all this stuff that goes on with um Klinsman where Sugar makes a bit of a fool of himself appearing on TV and saying he wouldn't wash his car with Klinsman's shirt. And he talks about Carlos kickerballs and, um, you know, he sacks Jerry Francis and replaces him with Christian Gross. Um, there's the George Graham stuff. And, and, and you, you kind of get this sense that Sugar by the end was kind of done with the whole deal. And, you know, again, Sugar was a Spurs fan. He just, it was just, I think, incredibly difficult for Sugar to, um to make spurs into a uh, a viable business and what levy actually did very early on was was turn it into a viable business and um again it's not without its missteps you know like uh graham leaves um under a cloud very early on just after the enoch takeover um and then you kind of got the uh, the sentiment of glenn hoddle being back and you know and having to be the person that sacks a club legend, um, the very ill-fated Jacques Santini experiment. Um, and he kind of lucks into Martin Yole, really. And, and Martin Yole is is really the person that kickstarts this whole revival of Spurs into a club that people uh, take seriously. And, and he, in my eyes, deserves, you know, a huge amount of the credit for that. Um, so I guess with Levy, it's, it's, it's a little bit complicated because... Um, I think the way that the wider media have reported him uh, has sometimes not not helped his perception amongst the fans because you'll read in the paper, you know, he's playing hardball over this, he's playing hardball over that. Um, particularly the end of Pochettino's run, you'd kind of think, oh well, you know, if he didn't, if they just got what Pochettino wanted him to get when he wanted the squad refreshed, maybe things might have turned out a little bit differently there and so on but I think there's also a lot of um appreciation for what he's done at least amongst the um the more intelligent Spurs supporters out there it's pretty hard to argue that he hasn't done an absolutely amazing job in creating that amazing stadium and um and in making the football club um successful you know managerial appointments very few chairmen get all of them right um, but when it comes to Martin Yole, Harry Redknapp and Maurizio Pochettino, he got three really, really good ones. 
And that's not a bad hit ratio in his time as man in his time as chairman. You know, it's not at all bad to get three managers that do that much for the club. Um, whereas you might say that Randy Lerner's um, uh, luck with managers was maybe a little bit different. You could argue that Randy Lerner didn't get a single managerial appointment right. Um, if you think about it, how many did he make? Uh, Gerard Houllier, Alex McLeish, Paul Lambert, Tim Sherwood, Rami Gard. I mean, Gerard Houllier on paper is a fantastic appointment, but he had to leave because of heart problems that we knew about 10 years before we actually appointed him. So, I mean, you start to think, hmm, we could have seen that one coming. Um, I didn't mind the McLeish appointment the way some people did, but because the one thing that Villa had lacked was grit and organisation. And the one thing you could say about his Birmingham and Rangers sides was they had it in abundance. But hindsight is brilliant. It didn't work. And you, you have to say it's one that didn't work. They were, they were very lucky not to get relegated that season. Uh, I always say that they, they avoided it because because they the, the season ended before we could <laughs> before we could get relegated if it was five games longer then other people would have picked up enough points to to take us down but so we were able to limp into the Paul Lambert era which was fine if you consider all the restrictions he was working under but i mean there's none of those that are what you would call surefire successes there's there's nothing unqualified there's nothing that i've not had to put a little asterisk next to so the only manager of his entire tenure that was worth talking about was martin o'neill who was appointed before he took over the club um and that's a world away from having as you say martin yall even if he looked even if levy lucked into yall a little bit and then pochettino and redknapp alongside i mean i think a, a big part of it is that Lerner came in with such expectation in a way that I'm not sure Levy did. I, he didn't seem to have the... Um, you didn't hear his name anywhere near as often in those first no. few years as you have done subsequently. Whereas Lerner came in as this anticipated sugar daddy. And I think that changed a lot of the perception about both men. Oh, massively, massively. Because I think, yeah, I mean, I you know, I remember when the takeover happened that, you know, it was, this, it was always reported as Enoch, you know. Um, and if there was a face of it uh, at all, it wasn't actually Levy. Um, and he, you know, he kind of started to guess, become a bit more prominent when, you know, these kind of um, transfer, protracted transfer negotiations started taking place over our star players. Um, and I think he won a lot of credit from Spurs fans for that because we've been shafted so many times by teams like United nicking our best players for not very much money. And so the Berbatov stuff was was deeply hilarious and, and, you know, sort of leading United down the garden path until they paid what he wanted for Berbatov was absolutely fantastic. Um, and, you know, subsequently that was the same with Modric and, and the same with Bale as well. And the thing is, is that, you know, he had the um, nails to take on board what his managers and what his uh, directors of football were saying to him and, and, and take on um, players of the level of Berbatov, uh, Bale and Modric and, and get a huge amount of money when we sold them on to the point where now, you know, we're, we're not a selling club. And, you know, we've had Harry Kane at the club 
all of this time and never once has there been a, a serious question of selling him so I think that that says an awful lot about the way in which the club started to take itself a bit more seriously under him because we weren't just going to kind of you know uh limply let go of a star player to uh to, to Man United anymore or to Real Madrid or to whoever so that was that was a big deal and I think yeah you're right that when Lerner came in and it was that first wave of American owners and I think people had a lot of visions of him being you know like an NFL owner and just coming with this vast um you know personal fortune that was that would kind of um be a big part of the club and it never really turned out that way and and I mean if you look at the signings that Villa made in his tenure you know there's no real you know massive splashing of the cash is there not on an individual player so you can't really find too many you know I'm trying to think of an equivalent that you could there's no Messer Ozil to Arsenal type signing the the biggest one I think we'd made was probably Darren Bent where we about 22 million or whatever it was uh, when he just had that great season and a half for Sunderland after, uh, after obviously you decided that he to, to cut uh, cut your losses on him and sold him to to the northeast at a loss and then we came in and uh, dropped 20 odd million on him um, but other than that it was more he did come in in the first few years with quite a lot of cash and it was spread around quite a bit so I think there was a lot of it got wasted and the one thing I've always read that doesn't always get picked up on too much is that about a year or so after he came in uh, you obviously have the 2007 uh, crisis financial crisis and a lot of the learner family money had been made in credit so I suspect what happened is even though he initially said he didn't think it would have a huge impact on plans going forward I think he sees quite a lot of his own money disappearing and he sees Martin O'Neill spending money on players that then don't play. And he sees Manchester City come in and the sums getting larger and larger and the reluctance to just kind of throw good money after bad starts to get more and more until the the whole thing just dries up and we become this. Uh, well, I think it re- you really see it start to bite in the McLeese season. Um, you do wonder how much of that was Alex McLeish not being up to the job of managing a club like Villa, how much of it was him struggling at a club where he was already kind of unpopular because of his Birmingham City connections. But how much of it was when you already have a side that's losing your best players to to Man City, to Liverpool, the money isn't there to replace them. You know, he was, it was on a bit of a hiding to nothing, I think. And a lot of that is that whole spell of a couple of years in the late 2000s now to compare that to Daniel Levy who as I said a while ago you would be forgiven for thinking if you didn't know that it was just a business arrangement to him because the whole thing that categorizes his job there that I can see from the outset looking in is the idea that he was trying to build foundations he's trying to do it all so that the club would be self-sustaining and that you wouldn't have to find someone to pour in that kind of money in a short term and you wouldn't be dependent on having to spend over and above what you what you earn in order to compete now one of the things i said when we spoke about the arsenal um during that time a few days ago is that 
you know, Villa outspent Arsenal during that period and still and still failed to catch them. Now, obviously, we were trying to catch up, so it's not a like for like comparison, but it's that's the difference between. I think what Levy's done at Spurs and what Lerner tried to do at Villa, which was Levy's built something where the club can go places itself and can compete. And it, and it was that 15 year, 20 year project. Lerner came and tried to do it in two. And when it didn't work and other circumstances caught up to him, I think that's where he found himself a little bit out of his depth. I mean, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, I guess you're looking at, you know, when Le- when Lerner first comes in and, and O'Neill is still there, you've got a really good team. Um, and at the same time, you know, you've got Spurs, you've got City on the rise. And it's like, you just have to get fourth place once. And the, the, the revenue that you get from getting there is so much you know that it just ends up you know being vastly vastly important so I mean the Harry Redknapp season um you know where Peter Crouch scores um against uh, against City and it secures fourth place and then you go and have all those European adventures with Gareth Bale skinning Mike on and all of that stuff that, that could easily not have happened but just as easily a few years earlier on, um, you know, during the uh, the Martin Yoll era, we were one lasagna away from doing it a lot a lot sooner. So there's a lot of fate involved. And has has Villa, you know, made it in in one of those O'Neill seasons, then they might have been able to kick on a little bit more, and maybe they'd have had, you know, a bit more of a a way of of attracting players and, and keeping players and not losing those star players that wanted to play in the Champions League rather than, you know, the Intertoto Cup. Yeah, I mean, we did come close, I think, because it was always sixth and we always finished kind of limply and behind not only Arsenal, but usually haven't managed to sneak in. I think sometimes it gets forgotten that we did come quite close. Um, the, the year Spurs broke in, we were still in the mix right up to the penultimate game of the season I think uh, and that's not even the closest that we came so the thing with the the O'Neill to Lerner transition that jumps out at me is that uh, Doug Ellis appointed O'Neill and it was kind of a how to describe it he basically sold the club to O'Neill on the idea that the takeover is going through soon. You will have this new guy. He's going to put money in. We've, we've sussed him out. We we think he's legit. You're going to get the cash. So O'Neill comes in and he's able to bring in Stylian Petrov in the summer with, um, is the last kind of signing of the Ellis era at Villa and bring, bring him in from Celtic. And he doesn't really settle to start with. We, he's, he's quite unpopular figure at the time, which is quite funny to think when you think about what he went on to be. Um, but it's that classic thing of you can be quite a creative attacking midfielder in the SPL and then you try and do it in the Premier League and it's, it's a different ball game. He had to move back and drop into that more defensive position to really find his, his niche. But a month or so later, so September, October kind of time, the takeover is kind of confirmed. So it's when we get to the January, you can start adding players to, to a side that had actually come 16th. 
the previous year. You know, we'd had, um, let's try and think who we had. Milan Baros was a top scorer with 12 goals. We'd struggled with defenders fitness. So we were playing Ridgewell and a young Gary Cahill in, at centre-half. So there'd been some struggles under the, the last year of, of David O'Leary. And then we go out and I think we make a big splash for the first time in a long time where we go and bring in Ashley Young from Watford, which is the first young, uh, exciting attacking player we've had for some time. And possibly even more eye-catching is the swap deal of Barosh for John Carew. And all of a sudden it felt like from the January of that season, we were starting to, to go places. And... I guess the the thing of it is now, even though we only finished mid-table in that first season under only, I think it was 11th or something like that, they set up this brilliant kind of partnership going on from there, which was O'Neill handled everything on the, the pitch and was the football man. And Lerner did very fan-friendly things like, Backed, the, backed him in the transfer market, reopened the closed pub that was, you know, not far away from the Holt end, um, gave these shirt sponsorship to Acorns. He did all that kind of thing and left the football to O'Neill. I think the difference is that at some level, Levy might actually just be a much better football mind himself. And so the underlying project isn't dependent on any one manager. Yeah, I think Levy was was very keen on the, you know, on on the continental um, model, and in fact, you know, Pochettino sometimes didn't like that very much. Um, there were there were a lot of times where uh, where Pochettino would come out and say, um, "You can't call me a manager because I don't decide the transfers, so you must refer to me only as a head coach." <laughs> There's this whole sort of like <laughs> mind games that that Pochettino would be, you know, every time he was not very happy um, about um, about transfers he would uh, he would come out and say something like that um, and you know I think uh, you can certainly certainly say that um, Frank Arneson and uh, you know and Damien uh, Camoli. Um, you know, they they were important uh, figures at the club, you know, and um, sometimes there was quite a lot of of a clash between the managers and those sporting directors. And I, I remember Martin Yole fell out with Damien uh, Komodi quite spectacularly. Um, and, you know, in fact, you know, he ends up getting sacked um, pretty soon after one day Ramos uh, does. So... Yeah, it's, it's it's certainly kind of interesting that, that they they valued, I think, the the project over any one manager's vision, um, you know, to be sure. Which is why the Mourinho appointment was so interesting because it was a massive departure from the kind of appointments that they'd made before. Because even though Sonsini and and Ramos ended up being disasters, um. You know, they were in the mould of the sorts of managers that, that Levy has tended to go for, which is, you know, um, thinkers, I guess, for one for better word. And, and, I, and I guess Mourinho is kind of a little bit of a, a little bit of a departure from that because he's the sort of manager that's going to, you know, is going to demand transfer activity, is going to want to pick his own players, 
um, and so on. But I mean, if you watch the documentary, if you watched All or Nothing, um, Levy is so starstruck by Mourinho. It's almost embarrassing watching it because he kind of is he's hanging on Mourinho's every word, <laughs> which is like, <laughs> which is pretty, uh, pretty, there's something a little bit, you know, David Brent and uh, Gareth Keenan about the relationship. It's like, they just kind of got this, this bizarre double act going on. But um, I think, I think then again, I think Levy took a very um, pragmatic decision in that documentary to come across as likable as possible. Um, knowing what his, what his reputation is in some portions of the fan base. But yeah, I think that's been the strength of the Spurs um, experience from the early 2000s to now has been that um, willingness to kind of make that transition from a top seven club to a top four club really quite gradually. And, you know, the Martin Yole years, you know, it's like you got one season where they almost finish fourth. You know, they finish fifth. They have some decent, um, you know, decent runs in the UEFA Cup. Um, you know, you get the sort of, uh, you know, you get the slight uh, bump in the road with Ramos. Uh, then you get Redknapp, who obviously takes us into Champions League. Um then you get again Vias Boas, kind of one good year, one year he gets sacked. Um, but he's always he's always tried to, you know, to keep the focus on building building towards that goal of being a consistent top four team. And in the end, it was Pochettino that achieved that. Um, and you've got to say that yeah he just got that manager appointment absolutely spot on because uh, I remember a lot of Spurs fans wanted Roberto Martinez you know gosh what an embarrassing opinion to have in hindsight (laughs) yeah well I mean Roberto Martinez actually if you believe what the gossip was turned us down during that whole learner uh, run he was one of the names that was meant to be kind of fancied for the job and decided to stay at Wigan. I mean, that shows how far we'd fallen just in a spell of a couple of years. Um, I mean, at the time I was um, more of a Lambert man, and which is quite an embarrassing opinion to hold in hindsight, but everything, <laughs> everyone's a genius with hindsight, aren't they? Um, yeah. It's, I think that's ultimately where it, what it comes down to is that Levy, Levy's always it's just there is a plan there there is uh, there there is a plan and when you look back at the learner era we were all just basically hoping for it to be kind of like a you didn't it didn't need to be Abramovich it just needed to be a it's the same sort of thing on a smaller scale if that makes sense we didn't need to drop 20 million 30 million on a single player but we were spending quite a lot of cash to improve the side and you do wonder if if luck comes down to it to a degree, because what if we had managed to sneak in, as you say, to the top four? The plans could have been very different then. Uh, what if we'd won the League Cup when you know we got to the um, the final against Manchester United and Vidic was inexplicably not sent off in those first few minutes uh, when he was the last man, presumably because they didn't want to send off a Man United player in the first few minutes of the final. You know. T- Winning things often leads to winning more things, unless you happen to be managed by Juan de Ramos. So you just wonder what kind of would have been, what would have happened if they'd have been 
if Arsenal had been a little bit weaker of a couple of years further down the line from that decline that we spoke about so that they'd have been more catchable, um, if they'd been fortunate enough to be up against an Everton that was managed by someone other than David Moyes, you know, they've obviously been very hit and miss subsequently. So you do sort of think timing was fortunate, but at the same time, there's a big difference between putting a club into a plan that should mature over a longer period where the timing always will be right that way. Whereas if you're just going to throw money at the wall and see if it sticks, the Leeds United model, the chances of going wrong because the timing's wrong are so much greater. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think you probably saw the same thing at, at Liverpool, you know, when, um, you know, the, the when the first, uh, takeover the Gillette and Hicks takeover happened they soon found that they couldn't hack it because they were treating it like an American sports franchise um and that's not what Liverpool Football Club is and I think what you know what John W Henry has done is understood what that club is about um and if you look at what they decided to do with Klopp they would they basically said right you know we are going to trust this man's project. And if you look at what Liverpool did, they basically buy a key player every season for about four seasons in a row. You know, they take Mane, then they take Salah, then they take Van Dijk, and then they take Alisson. And all of a sudden, you've got a title-winning spine. Um, and so they, they spent a lot of money, but they spent it over... A course of seasons as they were starting to put that team around them and, and and you know what what Klopp did at that club immediately was he kind of got everybody excited you know they had um, a run to the final of the Europa League you know including a thrilling game against his former club against Dortmund in a semi-final which was an amazing game of football so I think that that is important as, as a, a new owner that you kind of understand the club that you're at and then put things in place that are going to let things kind of snowball over time and learner seemed quite it just seemed to happen in quite a piecemeal way didn't it it was like there was a lot of money but as you say it was being kind of frittered a little bit you're you're kind of at the mercy of managers signing sort of you know players that are decent premier league players but maybe not world beaters and you know, it's 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 kind of difficult because then when you have a managerial transition, he might not like those players. He might want different players. And it, it became pretty clear that Lerner didn't have the money to be able to keep providing successive managers with new squads. And so then you kind of get into a bit of a a bit of a death spiral after that. Yeah, you do. And. I think that's when Man City coming in really changes the game as far as we're concerned. It's it's one of the things in a very inept way I was trying to to make the point of in the Arsenal episode was that you can kind of compete without matching finances in that previous era. But it when you were already outspending, it's hard to keep doing that. And the same thing is kind of true of Villa. You know, we were living on the generosity of a a foreign owner for about three years there i do have some sympathy for him deciding not to keep backing o'neill to the hilt um like if you look at some of the players that we bought in 
And we'll probably talk about that team in more detail someday because they were an important part of that whole kind of five, ten year period in the Premier League. And, and they're worth a look and they were entertaining. But there were as many transfers that didn't come off for big money as did. Like I remember one year they bought in Curtis Davis for about 10 million quid. Um, Nicky Shorey for about four. Luke Young for about six, Carlos Cuellar for about eight, and James Milner for about 12. And that was all in the, about a six-week period in, in the summer. And, you know, it was, a, it was a weird one because Davis would look brilliant, but he had a couple of injury knocks and was immediately written off as too injury-prone to be the centre-half. So the year after, they went out and spent another 11 million quid on a whole new centre-back pairing. Uh, Cuellar was immediately shifted out to right back, which kind of looks all right. You know, we're used to centre backs playing right back, but when you've just bought Luke Young as well, it's kind of like, well, you only needed one of them. Realistically, you certainly don't need to be spending 13 million on the two of them. And you know, 13 million looks like nothing now, 10, 12 years later, but it was a lot of money for defenders back then. Um, Nicky Shorey barely got a game. You know, it's when and that's it. It was it. You can sort of go through individually and say, well, it's not that much. But when you start to add up the amount of money on players, oh, I missed Stephen in that list. Steve Sidwell, five million quid, another one who was bought in for what was still a fairly decent chunk of money at the time. It's, it's become you know nothing since the TV rights have gone even even higher. But it was it was considered a decent chunk of money, and they became nothing more than squad players. And when you're doing that for three, four years in a row and you can start to see that the city effect came in very quickly with the the transfer inflation. I understand why he was reluctant to just keep pouring money down the well. I think for all O'Neill's good parts and there were more there was more good than bad at Villa. And I think subsequently that his career is maybe tipped where it's the other way around. For all this, it was very like wanted a player that happened to be in form without necessarily caring what they cost, whether or not you're going to use them particularly well. And ultimately, it wasted it wasted a lot of the money that was available to him just out of buying decent Premier League pros with. Not much more to recommend them than that. The one that jumps out at me was letting Gary Cahill go to Bolton and replacing him with Zat Knight. Um, you just kind of you you ride that one out. You develop the young player that you have. Um, it, it feels churlish a little bit to have a go at Martin O'Neill, given that before Dean Smith, he was the last manager to give us any kind of good time as football fans. But if you're going to be fair to to Randy Lerner, it wasn't all him. I think it's is a, is a point that's worth making here. He was somewhat let down in terms of the way that the money he put into the club was was spent at times. Undoubtedly, I mean, I I, I think the thing that's the key thing, isn't it, is that there weren't really any well beaters or any difference makers in there. You know, like I mean, Ashley Young. People forget he was a very very exciting player at Watford and was well worth the money and was you know really really good value and was somebody that 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 looked like and you know when he went to United that he'd end up being one of those real you know England's superstars and you know uh, 
as it as it happened, he didn't quite kick on that way, and he ends up being a you know a half decent right wing back instead. But mm-hmm. but uh, but certainly while he was at Villa, he was he was you know sometimes absolutely spectacular and and, and, yeah. and winning winning games by himself. So yeah, that was, was a great brilliant. sign. And obviously you know um you know you had someone like Melberg who was just a, a brilliant player over a, a really long period of time. But but. I mean, he came in in like 2001. He exactly, was like, yeah. John Gregory, I think, signed Melbourne. Um, he actually left during this era to go and join Juventus, which shows how good he was at for us. You know, Mr. Seven or eight out of ten every week. I mean, I think actually when you look back at it and you, you think the buys we made, who was actually worth it during that? We won't count some of the later ones because that starts to, to muddy the waters. But if you look during the, the good team that that finished sixth all those times and looked like they might kick on, how many good buys were there? I, mean, I think it might be just five. Ashley Young, James Milner, Stuart Downing, who were all really good buys and worth whatever you happen to pay for them. And then the others were really good buys because of the value. We got Brad Friedel for a couple of million quid and we got Emil Heskey for about three million who went on to be very useful other than that i mean suppose swapping barros for Carew, so maybe six if you want to be charitable but when you consider we were making eight ten transfers a year for only six of them to really look that great in hindsight i mean it's not an impressive record at all and i guess in hindsight i mean i guess in comparison that's where i think spurs do really really well because um if you look at the signs we made i think there was an obvious uh, market that we cornered in young British talent. We took Jermaine Defoe, we took Robbie Keane, Michael Carrick, Jermaine Genus, um, and and we kept kind of picking up these these players, and they all worked out. That was the other thing is they were all really good. I mean, Jonathan Woodgate maybe obviously it was a bit more of a gamble. You know, he was still had the odd good game. Um, and obviously, as well, we had a lot of players that, you know, had come through the youth system, you know, Ledley King um, being, you know, the, the, the biggest one of those. And obviously, you know, later on, um, later on, we'd have uh, obviously people like Harry Kane. But that's that's quite a lot later on. Um, but, you know, then the foreign signings, you know, obviously Berbatov is a, a unbelievable buy. Um and it's really only, I mean, you probably only say it, Darren Bent was the only real, like, absolute disaster buy uh, out of all of those. Didn't always buy the best defenders, actually. I mean, you know, Chorluka, horrible. Um, <laughs> Asuakoto, horrible. Um, but on the whole, you know, we took we, we took good players, we improved them. And then when, it, when the big teams did come calling, Levy generally got good money for them um and really it was only when i mean the bail money um was obviously hilariously badly spent for the most part um and only really only ericsson um out of those players <laughs> was 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 someone that, that that actually improved the team but on the whole over that whole period of time we generally spent whatever money you know, Levy and Enoch allowed, it was spent very, very well. And I think that was really key to the team, you know, maintaining that sort of fifth 
trying to get to fourth type of um you know type of run that we were on yeah you just mentioning Benoit Asuakoto there reminded me of that brief spell where he was actually playing quite well and um one of the more embarrassing fan chants that uh did the rounds on Twitter and the like was uh, about Asuakoto, but set to the tune of um, Don't Chirp or the Pussycat Dolls, which was uh, <laughs> one of the weirder things that came around in that time period. But I think you're right. I, I think the reason that they all came off is that Spurs scouting seemed to be so much better than ours. Uh, even when you weren't doing as well as we were in the league, when O'Neill was kind of flying. Um, it's, I guess it comes back to that classic thing of we were dependent on one man to handle so much of the football operations. Uh, you know, he had his team, Robertson and Walford, who did all the, the coaching because he wasn't a tracksuit manager, O'Neill, but he was then in charge of all the football stuff. And once that had gone, some of the stories that you you heard post Julia of the setup that we had, they're just laughable. They really are. You, you'd like you hear some I forget which league it was, but one of our scouts of a major European league was a student still at uni and another guy who was meant to be scouting the Bundesliga was supposed to have like just gone on holiday to Australia for a couple of months and uh, you get the sense that after a point they had no clue what they were doing and because they knew it they checked out and I think that's the complete opposite of you know Levy where you've got that almost uh, micromanaging kind of workaholic approach that I th- you can see why it drives the romantic just want to win things fans nuts but at the same time you look at the the foundations that he's laid and especially when you compare it to what happened to us over the last decade you just have to be grateful i think for the fact that you've been going up and up and up since he came in i mean i i think the man has done a tremendous job and I think uh, maybe your perception on this, it, I guess it kind of de- slightly depends on age because, you know, like I grew up in a an, largely in an era of humiliation for Spurs. Um, never anywhere near Arsenal in the league. Um, you know, like that one year under Jerry Francis when we were kind of good was about as good as it got. You know, post Venables, that was about as good as it got really for And it was... You know, it seemed like we would be a mid-table club forever, you know, like our absolute idol, you know, Glenn Hoddle is taking us to, you know, mid-table finishes. You know, that was kind of, um, you know, that was kind of about as as good as it looked likely to get. And, you know, Levy, uh, slightly lucks into Martin Yeo, as we say, and he... Um, they make some good signings and the thing is that they just seem to consistently build on it. And even when they did make the odd not so good manager appointment, it was usually corrected pretty quickly and you were kind of back in business. So um, there's a hint of ruthlessness about the way that he's got rid of people like Ramos and AVB when you consider how hard they work to bring them in uh, when it's clear it hasn't worked. The axe falls pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, AVB is an interesting one because I, I was... You know, I was kind of um, very much in his corner and thought he was doing a good job. But losing Bale killed that team, really. Um, And without Bale, that team was very, very one dimensional. Um, 
I, I guess the thing about Sherwood, and obviously I, I am no fan of Tim Sherwood as a as a manager, but you, you've always got a you've always got to say, if nothing else, he uh, he was the one that gave Harry Kane a chance, and you know if if the one thing Tim Sherwood does in the Harvest Manager career was spot Harry Kane, then you know you, you've always got to say that he, at least he did that. So. Yeah, I think I think Levy's ruthlessness where things haven't worked have been has been quite important because it people are looking at what Pochettino's doing at PSG now and saying, oh, don't you think Levy regrets that? And I think you, that's massive, massive revisionism because as amazing as Pochettino was for those five years, um, it was it was very obvious at the end that he was burned out, the players were burned out, and. It was the kindest thing for everybody, really, to, to move on at that point. And maybe there'll be a time in the future where Pochettino will come back and, and, and have a kind of, you know, a bit of a second coming. But um, I think to say that just because he's, he's doing well at PS, PSG means we should never have sacked him is a little bit, um, you know, a little bit silly, actually. I think so. it's it, it's kind of misdirected, isn't it? It's it's a coded way of saying that uh, that Mourinho isn't doing as well as you'd like, or as well as those people would like, um, and, rather than any any real statement about Pochettino. Yeah, and as Pochettino is our, you know, is basically the best manager, best manager we've had, you know, since. I mean, Bill Nicholson probably. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking that myself. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, if David Pleat hadn't been done for curb crawling, I think he might have ended up going on to be a really, you know, really great Spurs manager. But that's a, a story for another day. Um, but it, yeah, it's very much the case, I think, that it's, it's natural to look back at those good times and think, oh, you know, we want those back. But Mourinho has inherited a squad of players that, that were pretty much like had been run into the ground so I certainly wasn't expecting you know a Champions League uh run this early you know I know there's there's tons of players there but I think the amount of rebuilding that was needed of that squad is a little bit underestimated I would say but we're, we're very much firmly in the modern day now so um <laughs> so I, I guess I guess in conclusion we're we're, we're kind of saying that um the slow and steady approach of uh of daniel levy and, and enoch was kind of uh, uh the winner against the uh sugar daddy or uh, maybe aborted sugar daddy might be a better way of putting it uh of, of randy lerner and villa yeah i think so i mean it, randy lerner did a lot of really good things that were brilliant for the club and made you enjoy being a fan while he was there but the trouble is there's something that came up when he sold the Browns which was that he he's a nice guy but he didn't belong in that position in the first place you know too nice almost for the cutthroat world of owning sports franchises this is a guy who's you know largely inherited his wealth you know he didn't necessarily make a huge amount of it himself and Maybe that's kind of a you know nice guy, hearts in the right place, wants to give people money, great philanthropist outside of sport. Yeah, maybe it's uh, maybe you need to be a little bit more hard nosed, a bit more pragmatic, and know the value of a quid a little bit more. And Daniel Levy, if you listen to the people who talk about his negotiating, certainly seems to know that. 
Yeah, I mean, I really like the story that, that Lerner uh, sort of got into football while he was studying at Cambridge. <laughs> that's a, that's a, mm. a, a really, a really, a really romantic story. But obviously it's, it's funny because, um, you know, we're, we're both people that, that, that follow NFL as well. And uh, being the owner of the Cleveland Browns is not something that you necessarily recommend any anybody as a potential owner. No, no, indeed. <laughs> Typically speaking. So, um, yeah, the, the the warning signs were probably there, to be fair. Yeah, I think what we uh, kind of wrote off at the time is the Browns had only been around a couple of years. It was easy to ignore that, you know, that they'd come back from... You know, because they'd obviously disappeared when they launched the Baltimore Ravens and they had the franchise expansion. So you were making excuses for him almost. It's his dad's team, really. He inherited it. He's only been in charge for like four years. The team's only been there six years. In hindsight, it was just as bad when he sold it 12 years later. But again, hindsight is brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, that kind of uh, concludes our, our little um, our little look at, uh, at Villa and Spurs is kind of, you know, I guess intertwined uh, attempts to break into the top four, which was kind of uh, sparked off by a, a previous episode. And we'll, we've been doing a few more of these, um, you know, spin-offs based on uh, our sort of in-depth looks at, at team seasons. We've got a few ideas for some of that um, coming up. So we'll have a few more of those coming your way. Um, and then also we're going to do uh, some more 11s. And actually the next 11 we're going to do is going to be, based on this episode so do look out for that one uh but until then uh, we're going to say goodbye and uh, see you next time you've been listening to four at the back with joe maz neil and pete you can follow us on twitter or on instagram at 4ATB Pod. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts by rating and subscribing so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>